According to a new study, people's ears play tricks on them when they drink too much coffee. You know what makes me really sick to my stomach? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coffee and Psychosis, a podcast that has nothing to do with coffee. I am John, you are alive, and today I share with you a step into the unknown. That makes it sound like there was a spaceship involved or space or something, but no, this is just the first time I recorded an episode over the internet. No major Wi-Fi robot noises, so just bear with it. Myself and Niall, my guest, had an extremely wholesome discussion where we covered deep breath what happens when you jump the fence how a 72 hour dj marathon might solve all the world's problems what is the therapeutic value of being chased around a picnic table for smoking a cigarette what is the therapeutic value of you delaying my tea how exactly you aren't on the same level as us whether you have a riot shield or a toilet seat What does psychosis mean to me? <laughs> does it mean anything? Yeah, definitely. It's kind of, well, it's, it's very, very important to me because it's, it's a state that I basically at all costs need to avoid. And it's a state that I am very sort of strongly aware of and how sort of potentially damaging it is and how much I have to lose now in comparison to how much I had to lose then. And it's something I'm very much afraid of as a state that I do have the potential, worst comes to worst, I do have the potential to reach again um, if I made some incredibly bad life choices and went back on all of the treatment that I took many years ago. But psychosis, it's, it's a loss of control, basically, I think would be, and it's not a loss of consciousness necessarily, but it's a huge, huge loss of inhibitions, which socially can be great fun for a bit, but it very quickly becomes incredibly damaging. So did you, were you having fun at the start in oh, a way? Jesus, of course. I was having a fantastic time. <laughs> um, when did you first notice that you were kind of slipping that way or did you just wake up one day and you were like... Ah, psychosis. Hello. Yeah. It's kind of quick if you look at it long, in terms of long term, but over the course of, I'd say, a couple of months uh, ramping up. But it's quite important to note that it was largely a result of coming out of my first extended uh, depressive episode. Yeah. Uh, and the kind of joy and excitement and the kind of freedom of exiting something so kind of oppressive and so encapsulating and just just a constant feeling of kind of elation just not being depressed basically it's like liberation yeah absolutely and in terms of uh the self-isolation and entire loss of self-esteem entire loss of any kind of interest in doing anything at all i didn't see anybody for i mean i did um but didn't feel comfortable in a social situation for over nine months i think the first time uh, after so this would have been when i was 19 yeah it was an odd one i remember because i used to work with special needs 
But oh, was, really? I was a teaching assistant with special needs kids. A f- uh, fabulous job. I mean, really good fun. So badly paid, but um, and you work with great people because everyone you know that no one's really there for the money. If you know what I mean. I mean, you yeah. kind of are, but it's not a living wage, so. Yeah. Um, you kind of have to do it for an amount of love of it. I'll cut this story story quite short because it's not the most pleasant at all. But you have to work in, you have to do personal care uh, regularly. With, mm. And I was working with sick form kids at the time. I was nineteen, and I was working with some kids that were sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and then two nineteen-year-olds. Uh, one of which was a very large, uh, large kid. Uh, well, I say kid, he was the same age as me and he needed sort of personal care and changing and things and toileting. And, uh, yeah, one day he was really ill and absolutely shouldn't have been sent in. And, uh, so basically while I was changing him, I am about to say this sentence, he, uh, diarrheaed into my hands. I, I was wearing gloves, but yeah, the gloves, it turned out weren't enough. And I was already slightly in the depressed episode. And then there was just this kind of dramatic almost kind of melodramatic uh sense of i feel very much shit on at the moment uh and i remember i rang my dad and said that to him and he laughed and i was just like ah shit i didn't even really mean it as a joke and then but then yeah that day i was signed off uh from work for the first time and i ended up being signed off for nine months which is a fun entrance to that kind of (laughs) that story anyway coming out of that and then you know you put your entire life on hold so i was i was signed off from work i can't remember i don't think i was getting paid either a really big aspect of my depression was being so uncomfortable in social situations and so just incredibly self-aware and just a, a feeling of and just complete inability to engage with people and an inability to just talk and converse comfortably which builds on itself and then you think Every time there's a silence in the room, you kind of just think like, oh, shit, this silence is because of me and it's because I'm not talking and they know and I'm bringing them all down, you know. And then you have you feel less and less inclination to go to those, go to those social situations and see people. And, you know, so I had people ringing me and stuff and it wasn't that I didn't have the interest to answer the call, but I absolutely felt I didn't have the ability to answer the phone call and just have a conversation with them. And was this kind of like the first time you'd ever felt like that? Or had you been through similar things when you were growing up, teenage? I'd been, th- I'd been through two very short first job I got. Well, first full-time job I got because I dropped out of sixth form after the first year and I was working in a hotel and it was fucking horrible in short. It was a four-star yeah. hotel. Uh, I'm not a particularly four-star person would be what kind of star person are you do you think i'm relatively comfortable with anything i quite like camping you know (laughs) zero stars i find (laughs) i I do still find it awkward to be served if you know what i mean oh yeah anytime i'm going like go and get food or go into a bank or anything like that i always feel like i shouldn't be there or like yes. I'm doing something wrong or that I'm committing a crime just by going to the doctors or something like that. I know. If if people call me sir, then I inherently just sort of call them sir or madam back just as a kind of, <laughs> just a bit of a ping pong and a bit yeah. of a joke just to be like, ah, oh, come on, can we not be equalizer i'm not i'm not i'm not a hero of the people that's not me at all but it's just that kind of uh, not yet well we can get to that <laughs> because that comes later I was hung over uh, pretty much every day I worked there. Uh, I was stoned almost 100% of the time I was there. 
and it was just fucking horrible every day and all of the people were i say all a very large and the most memorable people were total dicks just like this cup is not polished <laughs> give a fuck sorry uh i could give a fuck if it's polished no one has ever polished a cup for me you can go fuck yourself it's seven in the morning it's a fucking like wednesday i'm hungover you're probably not can we not can i not just fucking kill us all and we'll you know so that was basically my experience of that but my first week there was directly after the first uh and actually only time i went to reading festival and I'd never been to a festival before, and uh, Pearl Jam fucking headlined. Pearl Jam are in my top, th- in terms of bands, they're in easily top three and sort of always have been. Um, but yeah, they headlined on the Sunday, and it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me. It was fucking brilliant. Festivals are a fucking fantasy, right? They're, they're, they're similar to psychosis in a bizarre way, because mm. you can't live your life like that. It only works for sort of three days in a row for a reason, because any more than that, it breaks down incredibly quick. Being in that experience... So this is Reading Festival, it was 2006. Between me and my brother, we had a half of really nice skunk. Each day we went to Tesco, we bought a new bottle of spirits sort of generally rum we had vodka and stuff and then beers just became soft drinks if you know what i mean it's just like ah let's have a slow start at nine in the morning let's just start on the fosters and then we can build up from there if you know what i mean and it just completely stupid way to live your life but fantastic fun as you know do you know flogging molly at all yeah i know flogging molly yeah oh they played twice for some reason because they played around no absolutely they played they played first they played early in the day on the main stage and then they played on one of the smaller stages on the same day. And I went to both sets and they pay, they played two markedly different sets. And they're one of my favorite bands as well. Oh, um, they? Nice. Oh, I just love That means them. you like the Pogues then as well, right? Uh, I never, I didn't really grow up with the Pogues. I do like the Pogues. Don't get me, I can see the outrage in your face, uh, but I prefer Flogging Molly. I just do Dropkick Murphys as well. <laughs> it's more, you it's prefer more of like Dropkick a, Murphys to the Pogues? I know. It's that oh. American kind of... Have you heard Filthy Thieving Bastards? Uh, I've heard the name. I'm sure I've heard something by them. I'm not huge on american sort of irish punk but um slightly backwards and sideways with my music taste um but i grew up with uh flogging molly because of tony hawk's pro skater i believe yeah. <laughs> uh most of my music choices were made by tony hawk um oh, and skate videos as well <laughs> uh yeah same for me um they got me into most yeah most of the biggest artists that i'm into although uh gangstar i heard on dave mirror's pro freestyle bmx 2 oh, yeah which is my favorite game in history this whole like reading festival extravaganza was this sort of sowing the seeds for for things to come do you think or what well the contrast between you know we left reading on the monday and then the tuesday at 6 a.m i had my first shift at the worst job that i've ever had you know oh and then i entered about a two-week relatively minor i'd argue minor but noticeable depression and what i was suffering was definitely notable and serious but it wasn't like i wasn't suicidal or i was overly glum (laughs) yeah two pretty solid weeks and then 
you know, no kind of intervention or recovery from that, but actually quite a slow recovery in terms of feeling sort of better. That was sort of three years before my first major and extended episode of depression, which started by getting shit on. Uh. My first manic episode and my first psychosis came as a result of that, essentially as a response to that, sort of internally, possibly physiologically, uh, having not done very much research into that. But yeah, just kind of a pretty steady dump of endorphins, I suppose, for a while. Began seeing people and actively seeking out, you know, the party lifestyle and just... We used to do, um, for quite a long fucking time now, I think about it, we used to do uh, free parties, so the raves... Like raves are like little festivals, but they're kind of illegal, which adds a little bit of spice to it and a little bit of just that kind of feeling of rebellion. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't be here, but we are and we're here together. And this is going to be fair. I did go to raves pretty much every week for the best part of about a year, I think, ish, solidly. And then went to sort of odd ones before that. But um, I'd say probably about one in five were good. That's so not good. No. Yeah, exactly. But you kind of, you go to an amazing one and then you think it could be shit. But if it's anything like that, mate, it's that just standard chasing the dragon behavior, I suppose. Yeah. Um, And that's an incredibly unhealthy way to be in a, they're not healthy places basically. And I, as I say, I never got into any of the hard drugs, but ketamine had absolutely taken hold of the scene at this point. And just from a physical standpoint and from an aesthetic standpoint, ketamine fueled parties are fuck ugly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cambridge was for a while kind of the capital for ketamine. And there were studies and stuff done about the addictive effects to non of non physically addictive drugs and they were all based in cambridge anyway um it's it's not a healthy lifestyle and it's not a they're not healthy places to be they're very unpredictable potentially dangerous especially some of the london ones police are potentially dangerous you know and things can and do get violent when there's huge numbers of people who are wanting to have a nice party and then are then challenged by you know i mean you get riot police very quickly you get all the shields and you get it often depends what part of the country you're in but the response to that can be peaceful or it can be everyone starts throwing whatever they have at the police. And then that becomes, which isn't something I ever engaged in, but once you're in that crowd, you're a part of that behavior. If you know what I mean, like that, yeah, you know, they're, def- they're de- defending against all of you. Um, when two tribes go to war. Absolutely. <laughs> Fabulous song. <laughs> but um, it's thrill-seeking It's thrill-seeking behaviour and it's risk-taking um, behaviour, which is all having not engaged in any of that for, you know, around nine months or so, getting back into that scene. And as I say, I'd, so the only, uh, the actual, the only drug uh, that I ever really took in terms of your legal substance was cannabis. Is that why you called it? Uh, it's not, no. Uh, <laughs> we, call it, we called it loads of stuff. We used to call it ganja, actually. Just because it's a really funny word, ganja or green or weed. And do you think like uh, the cannabis is like reefer madness, one toke, that's enough when you, you, you're crazy or what do you think? How do you mean? You know, like there's a lot of people. Is that a joke, is that a joke question? No, well, kind of. Every, every um, my questions are kind of joke questions. Right. I can dig it. Um, but, one one toke will not send not one toke will not send you loopy. Um, 
two, however. <laughs> but once you get in that second one, you're in for you're in for the ride. I get quite kind of obsessive about things, which at times has been a positive and at many, many times it's been a very, very negative thing. Um, and I was absolutely in love with cannabis. I thought it was I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. I thought it was just such a wonderful, just pure, fun, delightful, relaxing kind of entity that must have been gifted to us by some kind of higher power. And this and actually I am actually an atheist and one of my arguments for there being a higher power was that weed was just too <laughs> fucking brilliant, basically. But you've changed. Now you're like anti-weed and you're like... I'm not anti Get it off our streets. No, I'm... George uh, Bush, the war on drugs. I'm... <laughs> my president. Well, Nixon. Nixon is the, the yeah. big... The I'm big just thing, yeah. for a younger audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Barack inhaled... I remember just a feeling of being entirely, just being completely untouchable and beginning to experiment and explore with basically how much I could get away with, if you know what I mean. um, Being deliberately challenging, I suppose, um, completely unnecessarily, especially to new people. And you're in parties and you're in situations where you meet lots of new people and it just becomes an experiment and you think you're a fucking genius. It's just like, ah, oh, why is no one doing these like high level thought and social experiments? Like I am thinking you're the fucking bomb, basically. Uh, you are the bomb. Yeah, I know that's true, but it's, uh, I don't think I have a right to go around and tell people. That. No, they should just know. You shouldn't yeah. have to tell them. This is it. Um, and so I had a thing about tagging and I tagged for years and I don't tag anymore uh, because it, I don't know, it does seem somewhat childish now. Um, but it's a fantastic, it's a lovely bit of a lifestyle for a while because I was staying up all night anyway, most of the time. Uh, and I switched night to day quite quickly and no one's around and you can just run around and write your name on things. Aesthetically, not actually particularly good to be honest. It, I just had, it was just a name and it was an alias and it was like being Batman, but kind of in reverse and not helpful or useful to anyone. Um, well, when you were doing that, were you thinking it was part of something bigger than just like you're, you're writing your name on a wall or oh, something? Fuck yeah, man. Ev- everything, everything was a part of something bigger. That's a very good way to put it. It's just like, it was a part of my genius to be this whole other character, basically. And it's just that kind of act of rebellion and it's public. And I kind of had, in terms of time and energy, I had that in abundance to just run around and tag fucking everything. And then there's just that kind of belief and that feeling like, right, this bus shelter is owned by me now. Look, it's got my fucking name on it. And you kind of think that stuff is much more permanent than it is as well, if you know what I mean. So it's like ah, this is going to be here when I die and people are going to wonder who this person is, you know? Do you think you're leaving like a legacy of of something? Yeah, fuck yeah, man. This really ugly, destructive, anti-social legacy, but I wasn't thinking about it in that sense. I was thinking like, oh, I'm leaving people a nice little treasure trail. It's going to be like, where's Wally? Like, ah, he's been here too. It's like... It's like being fucking the Scarlet Pimpernel or something. It's just like... Were you trying to s- spread a kind of message with the tags or anything like that? Or Yeah, I'd write, I'd write stuff sometimes. I had a thing for if I saw an advert 
I'd like try and rephrase it. Like there was one, it was for Sky Sports. It was like some like fucking Sky Sports show, a new panel of people on this sports show. And then the um, little slogan on it was in a league of their own. So I just like really, really big, like fucking five foot across or something, just wrote my tag and then crossed out in a league of their own and just put in a league of his own. And I just thought, Jesus, that is fucking genius. This is all, this is your sort of two to four, five o'clock in the morning behavior. But before that, I was in the pub every night out drinking and smoking. I was seeing people every night, basically. Sleep just very quickly begins to seem like a waste of time when you could be doing something amazing. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and you could be seeing seeing people and uh obviously I, I was working a school schedule so my weekends were weekends but that wasn't the case for everybody so i had friends who had their night off on a tuesday so i go to the pub with them on tuesday you know and go and party and they haven't got to work the next day but i do and it so did none of your friends think there was anything afoot so to speak well it turned it turns out a lot of people cottoned on quicker than I kind of realized when you speak to people later on, sometimes years later, they were just like, yeah, you were going fucking nuts, dude. At no point was I kind of physically violent, but I was so kind of high energy and sort of partly manic, uh, progressively that it becomes intimidating. And then not only that, it just becomes irritating when you're kind of just running around and running around the pub and saying, I will fuck up anyone on the pool table. I am a fucking don at pool. I am all right at pool. Uh, but it's that confirmation bias is a really important part of psychosis in terms of just an overly inflated positive self-image. You have that confirmation bias. Every time you win a game of pool, it's because you're the fucking boss. But if you lose a game of pool, they were lucky, you know, ah, I wasn't really concentrating because there's a fit girl over there. It's definitely not because I'm not a boss because I'm definitely a boss, but there's definitely a reason why I didn't, you know. And then if you have a somewhat positive social interaction with quite an attractive girl, that's completely overly inflated. Or with someone, if you have a nice conversation with someone that you feel is kind of socially influential, like... You know, you've got your kind of DJs and you've got um, people who run nights and whatever. And if you get him free somewhere, it's like, yeah, of course I got him free because I deserve that because I'm the fucking king. I've seen my tag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it all builds up and it all becomes a part of the thing. So it's like I run this fucking town because I've written my fake name everywhere. My tag was Bambi, B-A-M-B-Y, and then eight nine. Then Cambridge became Bambridge. Uh, and if I saw any council signs that said Cambridge City Council, I'd just put a B over it. It's really quick and it's really easy to do and it looks shit, but it's quite funny. Um, so would you consider yourself someone uh, prone to mischief? <laughs> generally. <laughs> I, I would say so, yeah. But my, my mischief became more and more, uh, I'd argue, destructive and... You know, if you go if you go to the pub one week and you're running around and being a little bit manic and people think you're kind of on one, it's just like, oh, that's kind of funny. But if you then do that seven nights in a row, the staff begin to get a little bit tired of that, if you know what I mean. Mm. 
And that became the case in quite a lot of places. And then when you get into the real manic stuff, so so I had a big argument with my mum and sort of half got kicked out and half walked out because I was living with my parents at the time. And rightly so, she was fucking sick of me being a dick, basically. We had a couple of quite big arguments in ways that we haven't really since. So yeah, I ended up moving in with uh, someone that I worked with who's a really old friend of mine. And that was a big deal because it's just kind of like, oh, I can smoke inside and, you know, I can make noise and these people like the same music I like so I can play it and I can play it loudly. Your mum doesn't like jungle? My mum doesn't like jungle. I'm not actually 100%. I think I've possibly shielded her from jungle because uh, I think she'd find it so outrageous that she'd it'd change our relationship. She'd be appalled by it. <laughs> Um, all of the kind of manic and the party party lifestyle and the running around and tagging and less and less sleep. And so I used to go to Bristol an awful lot as well. And if you're running around and being manic and being a little bit kind of scatty and thrill seeking and all of that stuff, that fits in rather well in quite a lot of places in Bristol, for example. Um, and it makes sense there. Did you have a catchphrase or anything like that? Nah, just being, f- just, I don't know. It's difficult. Oh, fuck yeah, man. I'd, I got to know everybody. Would you and just like, walk down the street and kind of talk to them? Yeah, and just say shit to people and just be like, hey, man, how's your day going? You know, not that kind of, I mean, probably that fucking obnoxiously. Um, some people like it and some people don't. And when people respond positively, that adds to the confirmation bias that you're obviously fucking brilliant. And if someone responds negatively it's because they're a fucking hater or they're they don't get it man they're not on the same level as us Mm. and i was fucking wasted like a hundred percent of the time as i say i mean i was obsessed with skunk and obsessed with weed and stuff and like any kind of dulling or like tranquilizing effects of cannabis were just fucking non-existent at this point somehow almost everybody thought that i'd started using cocaine uh which i hadn't in fact and i can't i'm lucky that i hadn't did you start sort of seeing things or hearing things or anything like that didn't really see things i had one very strange little episode which caused me to have a panic attack basically myself and my doctor from the conversation we agreed that it was kind of a an auditory and a visual hallucination that then caused a panic attack, basically. Um, that was bizarrely enough uh, when I was still very, very depressed and finding things really difficult. Went out for a friend of mine's 21st birthday and the just social difficulty, you know, and she's one of my best friends. You know, I loved seeing her. And I was having really good, you know, I was really happy to be there, but just fucking hating the entire experience, if you know what I mean. And then realizing that socializing wasn't a thing I was able to do. And then basically I got sort of quite drunk and quite kind of high and whatever, but I ended up having, so you remember in Tony Hawk's, right? Yeah. Do you remember when you did a special move, it did like an orchestral hit? Yeah. Like a kind of done. Yeah. Uh, So I started hearing that uh, and then having like a kind of flash not that exact sound, but something very similar. And it would make, make me up and make me kind of twitch. And that happened pretty regularly. Basically started having kind of a light sort of color. And then at one point when I had my eyes open, I saw exactly the same as what I saw when I was clo- when they were closed. Yeah. So then I had a panic attack, decided not to tell anyone um, because I didn't want to get put in a mental hospital. <laughs> basically. 
Did um, you have an idea at that time then? You were like in a different mind state or, or did you I think? Became, I became very much aware that at some point people are going to start asking questions. But that, so that, that event was actually about, as I say, about nine months before I started going manic. So I was sort of a little bit aware that my wires might be a little bit spangly, if you know what I mean. And I became more and more aware because I'd known people. So the local hospital to us is Fullbourne, uh, which is quite well known. Call it Phillies, because uh, why not? You know, known a few people that have ended up going there with drug related things and acid became huge in about 2007 and swathes of people had problems with that not something i ever took because it terrified me it was one of those things that sometimes could happen and it was generally people that were slightly older and you kind of heard rumors it's like oh i heard he i heard he'd been in a mental hospital and stuff it's just like what was your idea of what a mental hospital was like at that time hollywood man one flew over the cuckoo's nest stuff yeah fuck yeah man uh did you ever see 12 monkeys oh yeah 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 that's i think maybe worse than one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh yeah the hospital is uh and then you've got like jebsey bronson what's that bronson bronson yeah it's got tom hardy in it ages ago i can't even remember it i thought he was in was not in like a prison i was broadmoor high secure but for your kind of proper like psychopath killers and stuff and then you've got like silence of the lambs and all that stuff so hollywood total hollywood just no no understanding of it and no real inclination to find out about it or whatever i remember joking with uh with my dad a while ago like if mental hospitals were depicted accurately in films the films would just make no fucking money because mental hospitals were actually really fucking boring when you were there didn't you try and make it more fun oh fuck yeah of course it did there you go (laughs) but like i like boring films i think What's a boring film that you like? Like westerns and stuff. Westerns aren't boring, they're lovely. Just, I guess, slow films. I like slow films. Ah, uh, slow slow films get a bad rep. Yeah, that's it. It's almost called boring films. They're entirely dependent on a level of kind of sustained engagement, I suppose, which a lot of people are not willing to give them. Yeah. I suppose we should probably talk about the, uh, the old, is it a section 28? Oh, is that what you were on? Yeah, fuck yeah, man. So what was like the, the prologue to the sectioning? So <laughs> the uh, well the uh, the 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 little just the behaviours of running around and making mischief uh, uptown, downtown, all around town. Was there no like pinnacle moment? Yeah. Case of about seventy two hours. I'm kind of ever so slightly conscious. Uh, I think there's there's an argument I might have slightly kind of glorified uh, and put a bit of a positive spin on uh, and made it sound rather good fun. Uh, just being manic and being psychotic. Well, it can be fun. It can be scary. It can be yeah, absolutely. Good, bad, all at the same time. Well, that's the th- yeah, absolutely. And it it becomes kind of scary but i think i should probably it's very much worth noting how destructive a lot of my socially especially how destructive a lot of my behavior became without necessarily i mean partly because it's there's aspects that are slightly embarrassing i suppose but i pissed off a shitload of people 
it would be the short version. In, in what way? Just things that you'd say to um, them to do stuff. So I, I was sofa surfing for a while, outstayed my welcome at a lot of places, and you find your welcome shortens and shortens the more manic you become. And, and in terms of that, you know, I want to stay up and I want to party. And it's like, yeah, well, I've got work in the morning. It's like, I've got the work in the morning too. Just stopped going to work. Um, and my plan was I was going to quit work and just become a professional artist. And this was when I was... That's when you know you're crazy, right? Oh, mate. Well, <laughs> well, at this point, I was. this is when I was 20. And it's a real testament to my kind of just ignorance of what it is to be a professional artist and what it takes to be a professional artist. And I am now 29. I'm in third year of illustration. And I now understand how retarded that was back then, basically. <laughs> yeah uh 10 years ago or just under but it all made sense you know because uh and i i have an amount of talent with art and i was all right i had some all right art back then um but then it gets you so far talent doesn't it well absolutely but even so like i was not producing you know i was producing all right stuff but um in comparison to now for example and now i worry about my uh, ability or sort of uh, value as a professional artist but back then, I didn't understand any of that, didn't didn't know or understand anything about the industry whatsoever. It was just, it was a part of the manic thing. It was like, well, I enjoy doing art and I'm good at art, so I'm going to make money doing that, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, it, it progressed and ran around and went to some parties, went to Bristol for like a week uh, and went to some fucking great parties and you know, was being mischievous as one is. Um, then I eventually came home. I stopped sleeping completely, basically. So I had a thing, I had an obsession with, uh, I thought DJ, and I, I still love DJs. I think they're heroes and uh, a lot of them are brilliant and loads of them are rubbish, but I basically decided that's what I was going to be with zero fucking skill and zero fucking talent in this. So there was a very basic uh mp3 mixing i can't remember what it's called but it's, it was really common it's really easy to use and i basically started putting out mixes obsessively but this is the thing as well it all becomes a part of it and i thought i was this fucking like and that's when it comes in and you think right i'm gonna do like a dj marathon for like 72 hours and i'm gonna fucking solve all of the world's problems Oh, I can do it all for charity and stuff, and we can bring the fucking world together because everyone definitely loves jungle, like because jungle's brilliant. It's not that crazy. I mean, that isn't that what Live Aid is, but just they had more resources than you. They have more talent. They have more right. musical merit as well. Is the important thing. I'm, I, I, it's uh, still true. You know, who knows? That's subjective. <laughs> it's. I was objectively untalented. <laughs> it's my. It's my it's the point I'm trying to get across, John. Don't encourage this kind of behavior. But at the same time, I was on Facebook. I'd I'd pissed off a lot of people at this point as well, and I hadn't got I'd got I did get into a fight with a guy uh, and not naming any names. And actually, in, in hindsight, he was absolutely right. But me and a guy who I didn't know very well were staying at his house, and we tagged up the whole of one of their living rooms. So it was me and me and a guy whose name I kind of forget started tagging this room he started doing it first and i thought he knew these guys more than he actually did and just in my head i just kind of thought they wouldn't mind so we ended up tagging up the whole of these dudes living room and it was a fucking dick maneuver 
one of the guys came downstairs and wanted to have a fight about that, and he was absolutely correct. I ended up getting punched in the back of the head when I was running for the front door, like, quite a lot. Didn't get hit in the face at any point, luckily. But again, that's all just part of the behavior, if you know what I mean. Tagging up someone's living room, again, probably on, like, a Thursday night or something, having been to the pub, just seemed like a pretty normal, quite a cool thing to do. Tagging the fuck out of all of their white walls, man. It was a real dick maneuver, and it was a really bad thing to do. But I didn't kind of get it, and I was just fucking outraged. I was, like, incensed, just, like, rage incensed. That kind of rage and that anger and just, like, how dare this person challenge, like, me, this fucking legend? Like, how can that happen? Like, what? I've... And it wasn't as if I'd just been proved that I was completely touchable and I wasn't that good. Like, no, yeah. no, it was, you know, it was the, it was the opposite. It was, it was affirming, you know, obviously there's going to be haters, man. Yeah. There will be haters. And that's what they do as yeah. the adage goes. Um, so I was, I was just on Facebook trashing everybody and like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought it was being hilarious and I was sending loads of shout outs and loads of love and like, got a soundcloud and started making these like fucking terrible mixes on this mp3 thing and I, i'd argue i have a decent taste in music but i can't mix for shit and i have no talent but now very deeply in a manic episode sort of very close to peak psychosis in fact believed that this was the best thing ever like ah, uh, i'm gonna make so much money i don't even have to become a professional artist now because I'm a fucking champion DJ, man. Like, this is going to be amazing. Someone went on my Facebook and, like, in an hour I'd posted, like, 25 different things. Not quite kind of rambling, because I saw some people's Facebook stuff that was literally rambling, but not necessarily sensical. Sending out shout-outs to fucking everybody. Like the Queen or...? Yeah, probably. Like, yeah, various celebrities, all, all of my mates and stuff. It's like, hey, Rach, man, this mix is for you. Yeah. remember you like this tune and we listened to it in your car once man listen <laughs> to this mixed with like a disney fucking remix or something I don't know. and i singled out a couple of people who'd basically sort of you know because you end up getting in arguments with people and rightly so because you're being your behavior is not manageable and it's not reasonable but then when people challenge you on that they're wrong man like because i'm doing something else i'm on a different plane and they just don't get it so yeah called out a couple of people that i'm friends with still do you know what i mean but um and had to put real work in to repair some friendships and stuff some friendships were not worth saving if you know what i mean so there's people that i haven't seen and have no interest in seeing mm. and they, so i basically went on a 72 hour fucking spree of it man really really fucking public and like then you kind of you, you tag everybody as well so it's just like ah oh, at mike how's it going bro let's chill this week p.s this person's a cunt like if you see him tell him he's a cunt and he can suck my cock forever and whatever like um Did you go back and look at this stuff after the fact well i've got to be honest years later five six years later i basically just blindly without looking deleted everything from 2010 on my facebook it's probably still there it's probably still look at all but it's legitimately unbearable i looked through a bit and it's so fucking cringeworthy 
and it's so manic and it's so just like unnecessarily aggressive at times so i just very blindly just went through literally just very deliberately only looking at the dates on stuff and if it said 2010 just delete 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 I knew that I was going to get put in hospital. I'd kind of had a couple of, not shots across the bow, if you know what I mean, but just like people saying like, have you thought about fullborn and stuff? And just being like, what the fuck are you talking about? Fullborn's a mental hospital. It's for people that are mental. I'm not mental. I'm just fucking brilliant. You know, that's hard to, that's hard for normal people to see. Do you know what I mean? Like it's hard to, (laughs) it's hard for normal people to understand how brilliant I am. Mm. That's why they think I'm crazy. You know, that's literally the mindset I was in. 72 hours, I got through an ounce, possibly an ounce and a half of what? really, really nasty. <laughs> and then like two, two litres of vodka. How did you get through with that so quickly? Dude, you can do it because you're just fucking chaining it and you get to a point because I was all adrenaline as well. Um, How did you have time to breathe air though? That's... Oh. I think it was, it, it was, I believe it was having an effect, but it wasn't really having a particular, it was having no tranquilizing effect whatsoever. Is that what you were trying to get her to do to kind of calm you down or let you sleep or what? Yeah, sort of. But also I just fucking loved it. Like, I just fucking love, I always loved smoking weed. Always. I was just like, mate, I'm going to get like legendarily high. Like no one's going to mm-hmm. have been this high. It all became, everything becomes so extreme. It's like, I'm making this tea, but like, and like, I'm not going to tell anyone, but like, this is going to be the best cup of tea anyone's made. And that's kind of half a thought that you have at that time. If you know what I mean, it's like, mate, I'm so fucking good at making tea and such mediocre things are inflated to being really important and interesting things. (laughs) You know, that kind of um, idea there that everything you're going to do is like great or you're great or you're going to be remembered or I always wondered if it was kind of because I felt so insignificant in the past. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I had an absolute fixation with suicide as well, just in terms of being anti-suicide. Oh, a guy in my year at school that I had been friends with, he killed himself when we were like literally the day we finished secondary school. Fuck. Yeah, it was fucking horrible, man. And he was a really good guy as well. I won't go too much into that, but my basic feeling was from that day, like I knew I wasn't going to kill myself, basically. Just seeing his family and his parents, man. Mm. I had a total fixation of basically doing like the opposite of suicide, sort of. I don't know how to... Like ultimate living. Yeah, absolutely. I'm living life so much to the full that... I'm going to have to go to this mental hospital just to explain myself. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, in all seriousness. So how did it go down? How did the... Did you go kicking and screaming? Did the police come? Ambulance? Did you walk down there? Ambulance. Um, so my best friend, Joe, who I love forever, man. I, um, so she was, she was a person I used to go see in Bristol. Yeah, I'd like shouted her out and she came all the way down from Bristol. Because, yeah, my brother had contacted her, basically, and just said, like, Nas fucked up, basically. Yeah, and she came and saw me, man. And uh, as I say, this is, like, three days in. I don't know. I think I've probably stated enough, but it was fucking raucous, basically. And I was perfect, perfect case for getting sectioned. 
And um, I'd thrown out a couple of threats and stuff, sort of just to protect myself, I suppose. And I was never, I was never violent, and I'm not a violent person. But well, who were you threatening? People that had said stuff like uh, that they were going to come beat the shit out of me and stuff. And oh, okay. Being like, fucking, fucking go for it, dude. Yeah, like, they were already threatening you. Yeah, and then people that I'd pissed off and people that were and also people that absolutely didn't deserve it but yeah I was never violent stuff but I, it was very not me behavior is the is the bottom line of that one but yeah Joe came and saw me you know we just sat and had a chat and stuff and she was trying like pretty fucking desperately to calm me down as well and she did a really relatively good job of that and then I um she knew that I was getting sectioned and I didn't and uh did she make the call no my parents did i had a conversation with her a couple of years ago because we went to the we walked up to the shop and like holding hands and stuff and just being like you know it's me and you against the world man for real and she said to me then that she was debating whether or not to just like run away and to just fuck off and not like and she said that she felt really guilty that she didn't do that so I had to basically, and as I say, this is a long time later, but I had to reassure her that she did the absolute right thing. What well, recently she said that she she was conflicted about whether she should have. Yeah, a couple of years ago. Taken, taken you off somewhere to save you from the, yeah, the man. man. Yeah. yeah, I was surprised to hear that as well. Um, yeah, I reassured her absolutely she did the right thing and she did do the right thing. Um, plus, it would have fucking destroyed my parents if she had done that. So, so did you get the ambulance turned up? Nah, a little, uh, little sort of cabal of doctors, I think three doctors, oh. came and sat in our living room. Sorry, that's my cat running around. That's all right. Um, little, little kind of panel of doctors came and sat in our living room and just started asking me a load of questions basically about what I kind of believed and what I kind of, and I literally just felt kind of this, that martyr feeling of like, yeah, obviously I've got to go through this because what I'm saying is so groundbreaking mm. that anyone's going to think this is crazy. But I started thinking, I decided at some point that I must be autistic. I decided at some point I had a photographic memory I decided I'm going to be the world champion DJ. Uh, I decided that I was going to go and talk to Gordon Brown and sort out first legalize weed because it's obviously brilliant kind of thing. I said this to a panel of like three doctors just being like, yeah, this is me. Deal with that how you will. And I'll come quietly and whatever. And yeah, dude, within about half an hour, like ambulance. Well, they didn't even let you show them how good you are on a turntable or anything. I never touched a turntable in my life. Is the funniest <laughs> thing. Yeah, that's it. Like, uh, and they had all the restraints and stuff in the ambulance, but I just, uh, and then, yeah, Joe came and sat with me in the ambulance, took me to Fullbourne, and then uh, they gave me Zopiclone for the first time, like sleep sedative. So were you not pissed off? Or were you thinking it was just like you had to go through this? I was very much thinking I had to go through this. I mean, I was kind of pissed off because I thought it was a waste of time. <laughs> hmm. But also, like, Joe was there and stuff, and I was just like, I should probably listen to her, man, because, like, she's not going to do me wrong kind of thing. Did you think you could just get out of it any time you wanted as well? Oh, mate, yeah, no the, idea. They, they wouldn't possibly say no to the best DJ in the world kind of thing. Well, I can tell you about day two. <laughs> yeah so um so did you just get zopper cloned out went to sleep and then that's day two yeah okay i was like 
in a way that I don't remember ever happening again. In fact, like head hit the pillow and then wake up the next day. It was fucking nuts. I was coming off 72 hours of just a fucking like, and like that 72 hours was spent mostly on my own as well. Mm. And I went, I did a little couple of runs of tagging as well around town and stuff. I mean, I was energetic would be the main sort of phrase, making trouble. <laughs> anyway, so got to Fulbon, got to Friendswood, which is, uh, or was it? I think it was Friendswood. Uh, it's called no, Friendswood. <laughs> yeah, I know. Actually, no, it wasn't Friendswood. It was like Oakington Ward or something. Friendswood's a different one. Yeah, all of the different, all the wards have different functions, obviously. And, uh, friends ward is for i think it's basically for recovery or like you're kind of less serious or whatever thing was like so they told me to pack a bag and stuff as well so i packed a few clothes and whatever and like joe helped me and like i should probably mention my parents because my parents were amazing throughout and the fact that i haven't mentioned them is just because that's hard and that's painful but they handled it almost perfectly in all seriousness um and I had arguments and stuff with my mum, and absolutely rightly so, in terms of not making me feel guilty about it as well, if you know what I mean. It wasn't, uh, you know, you're, you're killing your mum or whatever. Anyway, so they told me to pack a bag and stuff. And, like, oh, the biggest thing was, like, I said I wanted to go out for a cigarette. And I was like, ah, oh, you can just smoke in here. Like, while I was packing a bag, I was just like, all right, yeah, they're coming, man. Because <laughs> I was never allowed to smoke inside, like, not once, ever. And then all of a sudden I'm allowed to smoke inside, and it's like, all right, shit is going down. And then I had this panel of doctors and stuff. Do you know what I mean? But um, so they told me to pack a bag. Didn't specify an amount of time, whatever. I thought it was going to be a couple of days. But dude, I packed, I packed loads of stuff and I packed a tag marker. Do you know what I mean by like a fat cat? It's a permanent marker, but it's got like a 20 millimeter tip on it. But yeah, I packed one of those just in my bag because fuck it, why not? Do you know what I mean? So yeah, woke up, had breakfast. Breakfast was shit. Did you know where you were? Yeah, I know I was in Fullbourne. And yeah. I also knew that Fullbourne's like two stops away from my house. Oh. Uh, basically just started fucking running around and making mischief. A couple of dudes who were really nice were just like, you should probably chill out, dude. And I was just like, what the fuck are they going to do if I don't chill out? Do you know what I mean? Like, these fellow out. inmates? What's that? Were they fellow yeah. inmates? Yeah, I've never met them before. I haven't seen them since, but they were nice, man. They were safe. Yeah, so I had a tag marker. And I was in like your standard NHS mental hospital setup, and there's windows everywhere. So I just went on a little spree, man, just for the morning, just writing stuff and tagging everything and just being like, what the fuck are you going to do? Just not understanding the situation at all. Every time you tagged, they had another day to how long they keep you there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My whole feeling was like, yeah, they're going to tell the police. But when all of this comes out and they suddenly realize that I'm this like biblical level legend, I'm going to... It's going to be them that gets arrested. Well, they're going to have to put fucking like plexiglass over it and like as a memoriam of when I was here. Like, <laughs> But... um. And that, that's seriously the kind of thought pattern I was in. There was a bus shelter, exactly the same build as a bus shelter, but it was the smoking shelter. And it had windows all around it. I just tagged the fuck out of it, basically. Told them to ring Joe, because I wanted Joe to come and sort it all out. And like, Joe had no power in this situation, because she's six months older than me. We're both 20 at this point, and she hasn't got any medical training. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I thought she was going to come and sort it all out. And then... Basically, at one point, I was just like, 
because we'd been to full-born Tesco's and stuff. Like, there's a Tesco's next to the hospital. It's the closest Tesco's to where my parents live. I was like, fuck it. This is two stops away from where I live. So what happens if I jump the fence? So I climbed on the bus stop, finished my cigarette, and then jumped the fence. Just to see what they would do. I was pretty funny, man. Like, literally, like, a little, like, dirt, dirt dirt like really loud alarm starts going so i just start running and i'm just like this isn't me trying it because if i'm gonna try it man i'm not gonna try it in the daytime i'm not gonna do it in the morning what are you stupid so this was my little test run and like there's loads of buildings around like a big green and dude there was fucking staff coming out of all of the buildings yeah that sounds pretty organized i wouldn't expect it to be so organized Oh man, it was quick. Well, they they'd been watching me already. Basically, they were watching me on CCTV to see what I would do, and I'd already climbed on top of the bus stop once. So yeah, yeah, it was relatively predictable, I think. Um, they had the tranquilizer guns out. They did not. No, yeah. I basically ran and I ran to a bench and then just sat on the bench, and then put both my arms and just tipped over backwards and was just like, "Come and get me." Do you know what I mean? I sound way too proud about this. It's kind of funny in hindsight. I was being mischievous and I was absolutely being a fucking... But you didn't want to be there, though, so it's understandable. No, I didn't want to be there and I wanted to see how easy it would be to get to the bus stop to just go home, basically. I didn't have any weed was a problem because I quite enjoyed weed at the time. Um, I went back inside and I was outraged and I was just like, don't worry. And like, I had people just walking around with me at that point. And like in this ward, you can make your own tea and whatever. So that's lovely. It's nice. Uh, and then you can smoke whenever you like. So I was just smoking. And I had two dudes like just following me around the whole time. And I was getting progressively more and more pissed off at them. Went to the toilet and then opened the door. And there's a police officer with a shield, like one of those half length shields. Oh. Uh, standing at the door. So I just turned straight around and just put my hands behind my head and then I got cuffed. Uh, what, in the hospital? Yep. Because I jumped the fence, like I was, you know, obviously going to be a problem, if you know what I mean. And like, I hadn't had any diagnosis. I'd made a couple of threats online and stuff in terms of being violent and whatever. I got told later by, so I got legal representation at one point just because I thought, they'd be able to get me out um, much later on, like a month later. And she told me that basically it's standard procedure if a mental patient jumps the fence. Dude, they sent a helicopter out and everything, man. They, they sent like three cars, so all in like eight dudes. Uh, one thing about this as well is at this point I was eight and a half stone. I was skinny as fuck, man. As a part of the manic stuff, I'd basically stopped eating as well. So yeah, they sent like eight burly police officers with like a couple of shields and stuff for like what but did you I'm need like, the shields and handcuffs yeah i don't know you just it sounds like what you just opened a door and then they were just like literally i, I went to the toilet went for <laughs> went to do a number two and uh so i was in there for a little bit i had not uh i think the police got there pretty quick but like yeah literally i opened the door yeah dude with a riot shield but it's like a half-length right shield. Like, it's basically a square, like a perspex square. I just started laughing as well, man, because I was just like, this is all part of the thing, man. I'm the martyr. Like, I'm going in. Got cuffed behind my head and then behind my back. Uh, all in, I was cuffed for about three hours. Were they taking you somewhere? Yeah, so I, got, I had to get moved to a secure. Um, because of what you said on Facebook? 
Nah, because I jumped the fence mainly. But I was, I was, I was fucking squirrely, man. Like I was a, I was like a helicopter, just fucking spinning. Do you know what I mean? And I was entertaining and at times somewhat charming and quite funny. But like, I was potentially quite a big danger. And I can see, I kind of understand why all this went down. But like. So I got cuffed and then I was sitting with a police officer holding my shoulder and then talking to the one of the main administrative doctors. And they, she then explained that I was getting moved to a secure unit out of my pure ignorance. I didn't understand any of this. And I was on, at this point I was already on a section 28. Don't entirely quote me on this, but essentially it's one of the most powerful bits of paper in the British legal system. Uh, you lose your right to vote. Uh, all like power of attorney, if you know what I mean. Um, mm-hmm. And it's basically an order to go into a mental hospital uh, and it's involuntary is a very important part of it. When I had this explained to me while I was in cuffs sitting with this person and she explained I was getting moved to a secure ward. First, I went to Parkside Police Station, which is the main Cambridge Police Station. Don't really know why I went there. But I don't know if you know the whole system. When you get moved around places, uh, you have to wait for bed space. Basically, a bed had opened up at Peterborough. Um, so I'm in Cambridge. Peterborough is in Cambridgeshire, but it's about 45 minutes away. Um, that was the nearest place with a Poplar intensive care unit. Yeah, so whole time cuffed, back of a police van. Uh, I remember one of the dudes was called Marcus. Really nice police officers. I wasn't kicking and screaming or anything. Um, did you not want to kick and scream? Um, I was pretty tired, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I just completely resigned myself to the fact that this was happening and this was a part of the process. If you know what I mean, this is like the, it's the whole fucking martyr thing. Do you know what I mean? Like if, that, if I'm going to be accepted as this like world changing genius, if I understood what was happening, I think I might have fought against it a bit more possibly, but I'd known a couple of people that when they'd been sectioned, they'd been incredibly violent. One dude, especially, um, and it didn't go well for them would be the short version, uh, for better or worse with mental patients. If you've got that kind of label on you and the police are coming to deal with you, then they're going to be, they're fucking short and potentially just brutal just to end the situation. Yeah. So it doesn't go well for you if you fight with police, like ever, but like, yeah. So I kind of knew, I was aware of that. So yeah, I didn't do the kicking and screaming, however much potential fun that could have been. Anyway, so I got I got to Peterborough and a popular intensive care unit is a very small I believe generally a maximum of eight patients. When I got there, there were four other patients. And it's deliberately understimulating. You know, so there's just empty tables. Uh, chairs are very bland. Colours are very bland. There's nothing on the walls in terms of artwork and stuff. Sounds uh, really therapeutic. Dude, it's nuts. Completely understimulating. Generally quite quiet. Although then you've got the people that then people kick off incredibly regularly. So that's something else you've got to deal with. I met some nice people there, man. Staff, most of the staff were lovely. There was a dude, there was one guy that I did not get along with at all. Yeah, he didn't like me and I didn't like him. Well, what was he like? 
he was very blunt and short with me. Uh, we didn't get along, and like to be fair, I was not much fun company. Yeah, he was a dick, man. Like, and my parents got really cross at him. Another thing that's worth noting, which uh, my parents came and visit me every day. That was it. So yeah, I was there. I was there for twenty-eight days, and my parents came every day. A really beautiful gift from them to me basically and a really important part of my recovery did they bring you food or what yeah bought me cigarettes and stuff yeah um, nice. but in the intensive care unit you lose all control of hmm. um all your decision making so there's set times when you can go and smoke for example because nicotine's obviously a stimulant so they want to limit all of your stimulants yeah. there's set times when you can have tea <laughs> You're not allowed to make your own tea. You're only allowed plastic cutlery. You're only allowed plastic. Uh, you're not allowed like porcelain crockery or anything that can break. Had a mirror and stuff. You're not. You have to ask for everything. So I had shower gel and stuff. If I wanted to have a shower, I had to go to one of the members of staff first, say I want to have a shower. They give me my stuff and then go for a shower and then I have to give it back. <laughs> Is it all because you jumped over a fucking fence? <laughs> Well, there's that, but also because of how erratic I was and how unpredictable I was. Yeah, um, but... I hadn't been, uh, I hadn't been diagnosed and stuff, and I think it looked much worse than it was, if you know what I mean. But yeah, the main catalyst for that, I believe, is that I jumped the fence. <laughs> so kids, if you get sanctioned, don't jump the fence because it gets worse. <laughs> For the first like couple of weeks, I was checking the news and stuff, like BBC News, getting the papers and stuff, and just looking at the front pages just to see how long it was going to take them to report on the fact that I'd been sectioned. Do you know what I mean? And it's that delusions of grandeur stuff. Didn't really go into the Jesus stuff, but I spent an amount of time thinking that it made sense that I was not necessarily Jesus himself, but like a Jesus-like figure. I basically decided that um, all the birds and like squirrels and the animals and stuff were God's eyes looking down on the world and like keeping an eye out on me, if you know what I mean. And then like a bird flew over and dropped a feather, uh, like a really little feather. And I decided that that was a message from God that I was going to make peace in the world. And yeah, you should have used that feather, turn it into a quill. That's what you're supposed to write your new Bible with. Ah, oh, dude, it was tiny. I kept it in my shoe, though. I kept it in my shoe for, like, a year or something, like, even after that, just as a kind of... But, like, um, so I was believing some pretty crazy shit at this point. It's not a nice way to put it. My dad got quite cross at me, but I um, basically said to him much later on that the most religious and the most belief that I ever had in God was uh, when I was psychotic. Yeah, yeah, same here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, again, it's all a part of that. I basically just felt like I was, like, a fucking force of peace, like, just a fucking spiritual being that was made of kind of just peacefulness, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. which made no fucking sense because I was running around making a pretty big mess, generally, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so I just thought I was above it all, if you know what I mean. I thought I was kind of existing on a plane above all this and i had to just sit through this and then i'd go they'd take me to go and see like the dalai lama and we'd go and discuss how we're going to make world peace and shit obviously i'm being somewhat kind of flippant about that um but that's generally kind of where i was at and that's so i was literally checking the news 
breakfast news in the morning, afternoon news, 10 o'clock, you know, 6 o'clock news, 10 o'clock news. When are they going to report and say, like, ah, would you believe that Niall's been put in a mental hospital? That's genuinely where I was at for a good sort of couple of weeks. There was a Saudi guy and he came into the hospital and he was kicking and screaming. And he was lively as fuck, man. As soon as he got there, we just like, became friends like that day. He had a thing where he'd turn on... So there were plug sockets in all the room and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he'd turn on all the plug sockets and like put his hands out. And he like he thought that he was taking in the, the energy from the lights. And then any of the stuff that he didn't like, he'd like do this like... You know how people... You know blow darts? Like, yeah. He'd do this like he told me that he was like blowing bad energy at them. So me and him got and we were real kind of we got really kind of close and uh, just kind of just relaxing and like all you can do in the PQ ward it's like a I'd say it's about a hundred meters um, corridor and just fucking walked that corridor all day man watch TV and stuff. They had a Nintendo Wii with like sports on it and we played that a bit sometimes but like yeah he was lively man and like one day like all of a sudden uh it was an odd one because he he i think he had dual nationality possibly but his dad was saudi and his dad had basically finally found him because he didn't had have any idea on him and stuff as soon as his dad found him he was just like i'm taking him home and i'm taking him out of here straight away yeah, from what I understand, he uh, just got taken out of the hospital and then went to Saudi Arabia. I never saw him again. And it just fucking broke my heart, man. Like, um, So I had this like real close friend for like a couple of weeks and then I just felt like I had fucking no one. Do you know what I mean? Like, but yeah, I've still got like... So he was really strong, uh, like devout Muslim. Like he wrote me a prayer that he'd like learnt because it's a really important thing. I've still got it on my the wall in my study, man. Like, I don't know what any of it means. And it's in Arabic. And it's just like a really beautiful little object and reminder and stuff. But yeah, that, that was fucking heartbreaking, man. Because I had someone that I could just talk to like all day. And we would just chill and stuff and, you know, have cigarettes. And he never had cigarettes, so I always gave him cigarettes. <laughs> that was fucking dark. That Like, that was kind of a change, if you know what I mean. That was like a... Kind of goes in phases. I was in there for like... 28 days i think 29 days my 21st birthday i was in there one of the other patients made me a cake it was love it was delightful um like it was the first day that i was allowed to leave so we went into peterborough hell of a town oh man and just got voted the worst place to live like a couple of weeks ago you see that like we went to peterborough cathedral and had a real spiritual experience there because i was still a little bit kind of manic and stuff yeah, my buddy Spiv came, and my buddy Robbie came, and my brother came, and my dad came. And uh, I got really into Nuki Brown Ale for a while. And like, I, my dad got me a bottle of that, even though I wasn't allowed to. And then we chilled in the car park and had a little drink and stuff, and got loads of cards and whatever. But like, sorry, I've just been really flippant. I got some really lovely cards. Um, but at that point, I'd been in pq would it's a horrible experience basically i wouldn't change it because of the life that i have now um but it was fucking horrible man it made me not want to fucking go back there and that's what really because i'm afraid of psychosis um it was fucking great fun at the time and like obviously it's fun it's fun stories to tell i'm sure you agree and in your experience as well 
some of them are fun stories to tell, like the crazy shit that you did and whatever. Because it's funny and it's entertaining and it's only funny because it's nonsensical and it doesn't make any sense and it's ridiculous and it's crazy and it's whatever. If I was to go through something like that again, how much I have to lose now is so much bigger than what I had then at 2021, do you know what I mean? slightly wrap up the popular intensive cane um on my 21st birthday had a meeting with my parents and with dr saeed and uh i think my brother might have been there as well and then with a couple of my nurses and stuff and they said like yeah we're moving you out of a secure unit and into friends ward in fullborn and that was kind of like going home in a way if you know what i mean yeah because of the amount of free, uh, the amount of freedom that I was then going to be given, I'd be allowed to smoke when I wanted. Uh, I'd be able to sort of stay up and watch TV a bit later or whatever. And obviously, you're still in an extremely controlled environment. But um, so that was on my birthday. They told me I was moving out, and I just broke down crying, almost like manically so, and just out of kind of just like desperate fucking tears. Just like thank fuck, it felt like this experience was kind of over and it wasn't, but I kind of thought it was. Um, so that was a big fucking deal. Yeah. went back to friends ward from there. I say back to friends ward. So friends ward's the famous one. Basically everyone that I know that's been to Fullborn has spent time in friends ward. I don't know why they call it friends ward. Uh, owned by Disney or something. Oh Christ. Yeah. Tell me about it. It's, it's a somewhat friendly place in a way. <laughs> Um, but the thing about that was I got moved to friends ward and then I was put on a voluntary section. Um, so I was taken off for section 28. I was put onto a voluntary section, but essentially they made it quite clear that if I wasn't on a voluntary section, they just extend my section 28. It gave me freedoms that weren't open to most of the other patients. So I was allowed to get, I was allowed to be taken out for an evening, for example, and I could go, I could leave the building whenever I wanted, sort of. So I was allowed to go to Tesco's whenever I wanted, allowed to go in the grounds of Fullborn. Weather was lovely at that point as well. I don't really remember it raining, but whenever I wanted to leave the building, I was allowed to, unless I had like a specific meeting or if someone was coming. So I spent an awful lot of time in the Fullborn grounds, which are nice. They're grassy and there's trees uh, and it's quiet and whatever. And you can avoid all the screamy people. Oh, another thing I should probably mention, which is quite important in terms of one of the weaknesses of the system. I'd been 28 days without a spliff. I got driven from Peterborough to Fullborn by a woman who became my um, CPN, my community practice nurse, uh, who was lovely. She was called Lucy. I had a nice chat with her about kind of how, you know, the goalposts had completely changed, if you know what I mean. Like, the game was completely different at this point, and I was explained my freedoms and what was different between mm. that and where I was going. Uh, and I was very happy about all this. So I got there, and uh, there was an art room there and stuff, so we went and doodled and stuff. But, like, there were two dudes. There was a dude called Jono and a dude called Dan, and they were both really, really nice. I mean, both really manic, but really good fun and really charming and really friendly. And... um you can tell from a mile off if someone's a stoner. And at this point, I had dreadlocks. Like, I've got dreadlocks now, but, like, yeah, I'd look like a stoner, basically. And um, Jono asked me if I'd had a spliff. And I was just like, fuck no, dude. When I got to Friends Ward, 
within half an hour, I had like two zoots with weed in my shoe, just straight away, just ready to go. And I was super excited. Like, uh, you know, hadn't had a zoot for like a month for the first time, like ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's fucking crazy, man. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I remember people saying that Friends Ward is awash with drugs. And like, it sounds like a joke, but like, yeah, within half an hour, I had weed on me. As soon as I got there, they took blood tests and stuff to check levels of basically everything. But one of the main things is checking drugs. And then, of course, they can use that to do piss tests against. Got piss tested like a day later, having already had like two zoots and stuff. That's one of the things, like in terms of the half-life of how long weed stays in your system, it's about 28 days. Um, so having not smoked for 28 days, had very close to zero in my system, and all of a sudden my like levels spike because like, I'd had a couple of zoots the day before. And I remember I rang Joe and was just like, yeah, I'm about to fail a piss test, like a drugs test, because uh, I didn't really think about that. Like I didn't really understand what they were doing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so that sucked. And then, of course, my parents found out and rightly so they were furious man and had like a really big fight with them about it and that was when my mum explained to me as well and it was it completely flipped my understanding of it because when you get let out of um the mental health hospital you have to be uh then moved into the care of someone else yeah if you're going to do the care in the community and be an outpatient and stuff and it had already been agreed that my parents were going to be my essentially my carers. Uh, when I failed that piss test, had a great big argument about it and stuff, and I was just like, well, of course I'm going to smoke because I'm a stoner and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, like, uh, she explained to me, like, if I was going to move in with them, like, they had to be ready as well. Like, it wasn't – they weren't, like, waiting for me to be ready. It was also, like, half and half in terms of just give and take, in terms of if they're going to let me – live with them like i have to be healthy and playing the game if you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh, and i'd never really thought about it like that and she was absolutely right but of course at the time i was fucking furious and like stormed out of the room and stuff yeah that was rough that's one of the things as well like that one of the biggest things that stands out and one of the things you get used to quite quickly uh is how often you see people just fucking like blowing up if you know what i mean in terms of just that being an environmental factor yeah and something that is just a regular occurrence that you get used to that's one of the biggest things that you just kind of have to accept and you get used to when you're in a hospital is that people do just kind of kick off and so yeah i kind of kicked off i had a great time at friends though like comparatively and I was allowed headphones and stuff because I wasn't allowed like wires and whatever, and I wasn't allowed shoelaces. Fucking hell! And then when I went to Fullborn, I was allowed shoelaces again, and like the luxuries. What luxuries? Know, man, <laughs> this is the thing. Like, but like, um, to be fair, the whole thing is just so degrading. It's not dignified, and people have a rough fucking time in there. I mean, I've brushed. So I could tell you various stories. My Saudi friend, one day he stuffed half of his clothes into his toilet and flushed it and then stuffed the other half of his clothes. So we each had a toilet in our room and uh, he stuffed half his clothes in his toilet and flushed it and then the other half of his clothes in my toilet and then took a shit on him and flushed it and flooded both of our rooms. And I was like fucking furious. I was just like, I thought we were, I thought we were buddies. Like what the fuck's going on? And then he was just like, you and me, we're the same. 
like it took me a couple of days to get over that to be honest because like yeah he kind of flooded my uh, flooded my bedroom with shit which was annoying more shit there's so much shit in your story oh man this yeah it sounds like i'm kind of fixated on it but <laughs> yeah did a tiny little bit of research which i should have done beforehand in terms of sectionings and they are genuinely interesting documents but i got it wrong it's not a section 28 it's a section 2 which is a 28 day section oh yeah 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 and the one that you don't want the big one that you want to avoid basically at all costs is a section 3 Every, i think everyone goes in a section 2 and then i was yeah. put on a section 3 cuz i pissed them off there's arguments around it being used as a punishment which is legitimate i think that's really fucked up oh, don't get me started don't get me started it's another, it's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's totally luck of the draw as to where, what, uh, who your doctor is. You could be in a place yeah. that's got a really good reputation, and if you've got the one doctor that's a cunt, you might end up there for 18 months, dude, just for arguing with him. But that's, yeah, as you say. So I managed to avoid going on that by going on a voluntary section after my section two. Uh, so I thought I should probably, just for all of those... Uh, yeah, fact-checking pedants yeah <laughs> did you make friends on friends ward then it's not really a good place to make friends i suppose in a way yeah friends ward <laughs> this is my this is my advert for friends ward uh, i think it's kind of worth uh mentioning because i did mention before about the arguments that i had with my parents because yeah. obviously being on a voluntary section and then them wanting to put me into outpatient care it has to be agreed upon and the and you know the people that you're going into care with have to be ready and stuff and i was being in short a bit of a cunt like the whole time i was in peterborough for example i just have like fat arguments with him most kind of days despite how amazing it was that they visited me every day i was very much kind of taking that for granted mm. and just consistently furious because it's a horrible place to be and being sort of acutely aware that if they had the inclination, they could say, we want to take him out now, if you know what I mean. We want him to come home and whatever. And they mm. were right to not want me to come home. And I was not in a position to understand that. I still feel guilty about that as well. Because that must have been fucking brutal to deal with, basically. Um, and I, yeah, continued that in Friends for a while as well. They began sort of letting me stay home for a night, for example. Spend some days at home and then spend nights at full-born kind of thing Lo loads of the stuff is just waiting in fact just waiting for loads of the admin to come across so like i ended up staying in peterborough a few days longer just because they were waiting for a bed to open up at friends wash and that's just hugely frustrating it's just kind of like oh yeah it's not going to be today and it's just like fuck well that kind of displacement isn't really how do Therapeutic. you know? Do you know? Well, like moving people around. Am I going to be staying here today? I've got to go to this place. For, yeah, exactly. uh, I mean, I oh, do. The arguing of the therapeutic value was a tactic that a dude called Jimmy taught me. So I, to I told you about the one member of staff that I used to get in fights with, or not yeah. fight, but. Like, and tell us about the fights, though. Never physical, in all seriousness. But like, uh, he threatened to put a pin in my ass. Not a pin. Uh, what's it? Needle in my ass if I didn't cut didn't settle down quite a few times uh and sounds like a great guy oh man exactly think, the people should be working in these places i in a in a sense i sympathize with him he was he was young man like he was 
I've not, I, I'd say he's mid twenties when you're in there 28, 28 days and he's there like five days a week. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, he's there for his shift and he's there for his days. I'm there the whole time, man. Like, I should, I probably shouldn't be defending him. And, uh, <laughs> I was also being a cunt and I decided very quickly that I didn't like him. And like one time he, so, you know, uh, you have set times that you can smoke. I can't remember how many times I think it's possibly, I think it might be six times a day. And we generally minimum have like two cigarettes and I'd gotten an argument with him just before, uh, just before a cigarette break, basically. And uh, he said I wasn't allowed outside because we needed to talk to, like, the higher-up nurse. And he basically wanted to punish me by not letting me go for a cigarette. And I was just – and I said to him, like, you're going to open that door and people are going to go out of that door. And I do not believe that you can stop me going out of that door. He was like, I'm pretty sure I can. It turned out he couldn't because I lit- – like, literally, I just, like, dived under his legs like a fucking child. Like, nice. But, like, it was funny as fuck. And, like, he was just like – and he had my cigarettes. And uh, he was like, well, I'm not giving you a cigarette. And I was just like, Jimmy, man, can I have a cigarette? And he gave me the cigarette that he was smoking. And I just started literally running around a picnic bench to get away from this dude. <laughs> and like... Like a cartoon. Ah, oh, dude, it was... <laughs> and like, the thing about it was, like, this was a thing, like, the therapeutic value thing, right? Jimmy taught me this mantra. And he basically told me that if I wanted to piss this dude off, try and argue the therapeutic value. So like I'm running around puffing on this cigarette and like I was skinny as fuck, but I was pretty quick as well. And I was just like saying his name and just being like, what is the therapeutic value if you chase me around this table? What's the therapeutic value if you not let me have a cigarette? It's a valid question though. One time he said he didn't give a fuck. And like, I was just like, ah, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell people that you just said that Mr. I did find out his second name as well. I started calling him Mr. and then his second name, and he fucking hated that because he had the same first name as another dude. So, like, to confuse, not to confuse between the two, you'd say, like, either his name and then initial and then, or just surname instead. And he just became Mr. his surname, and uh, he fucking hated me, man. It was great fun. Sounds um, like he should not be working those places, though. Someone like that. He. Yeah, I think in terms of just one, uh, he pissed my parents off a few times. My parents hated him, and they, they yeah, he was a dick, man. Like I'm not, I, I shouldn't really defend him, but like also I was being a dick as well. Also I was a mental patient, you know. But yeah, yeah, it's so, difficult. It's like power stuff, though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was the thing. The only power he had over me at that time was basically when I could go for cigarettes. Not being funny, man. When you're when you're sitting up in one corridor, there's basically sort of like three, maybe four rooms that you can go in. And then like there's clocks everywhere, which kind of isn't that useful. That's really frustrating because you're watching the clock and, you know, you learn the times of things really fucking quick. And dude, you rely on those cigarette breaks. Like I don't smoke anymore, but like uh, you absolutely rely on it. It's like punctuation in your day. Yeah. And he's threatening to take away like... Do you know what I mean? So I was just like, I'm not having that. And also, I, f- it was, I was bored as fuck. Everyone was bored as fuck. And annoying him was pretty entertaining. I mean, at the same time, pretty frustrating. And if he was actually getting in the way of my day, if you know what I mean, then I'd get genuinely pissed off and have, like, shouting arguments with him. But, like, uh, I had some absolutely – there were some absolutely lovely people working there as well. There's a woman called Jenny, who's uh, – me and Jimmy used to call her Babalu. 
and uh, she used to call herself that as well. She was the best, man. I love Jenny. She was the best. It just becomes part of the experience. It's just kind of, and me, if me and Jimmy were together and this dude was on shift, like his his night or his day was going to be hard. Like, <laughs> it, it just, we were going to make it hard. And like our mantra was just like, dude, what's the, therapeutic, what's the therapeutic value of you delaying my tea to have this chat um, about why you think that blah, blah, blah. So I don't give a f- and just telling him that we didn't give a fuck what he thought and like questioning his professionalism and stuff and just being like, you're a nurse. And I spoke to the doctor this morning and he said, I'm allowed cigarettes so you can go fuck yourself. kind of thing. <laughs> but that's that kind of mischievous little bit coming out as well. Like, Yeah. Well, said, you've had all your powers stripped from you. So well, you've got to take away. Yeah. yeah. Dude, I remembered as well. We weren't, we didn't have a toilet seat, uh, plastic sheets, oh, yeah. no shoelaces, they took the drawstring out of my really nice Nike joggers and I could never get it back in because that's really hard. What uh, the fuck is someone going to do with a toilet seat? It's, uh, it's light enough to pick, an up, pick up and use as a weapon. I saw some people kick off in a big, violent way a few times in there. There was a dude in there that I got along with probably about like two-thirds of the time and then he just decided he was going to be a cunt to everybody. And like, There were people I was cunts to in there as well. There was people I was really out of order to. There's a lot of people I got along with really well. And like, it's such an extreme situation. Mm. It's the same as anywhere in life. Like, you know, quite quickly when you're going to get along with someone, but it's such an intense situation to be in that those feelings very, very quickly become very intense. Like, I think this person's a dick. I fucking hate this person. And you decide that within a day and then you're in there with them for like 20 days. Um, I got super good at Wii Golf, man. I've never had the inclination to ever play it again, but like most of the Wii sports games I got pretty good at. Wii tennis, I fucking hate. And then this this dude who I didn't get along with thought he was the shit at Wii bowling. And like there's like a couple of little tricks and as soon as you figure them out, like you're sorted for the whole game. Like as soon as I figured those out, I beat him consistently until he wouldn't play against me anymore. So that was that was a little victory. You take whatever victory like in an argument, you take whatever victory you can have. And like in any social situation, you take whatever victories, however small, however fucking petty. When you're stuck in that kind of situation, you take your tiniest of wins and they don't let you out. This is obviously an incredibly simplified version, but they don't let you out until you have an insight into where you've sort of how mental you were. Yeah, that's where you were, where you were then and where you are now. So you basically have to buy into their ideology to get out and actually i did realize as well that i hadn't mentioned medication at all i mentioned zopiclone so i was on zopiclone every day for like six months did you enjoy your lanspine did i enjoy your lanspine (laughs) Um, therapeutic value of a lanspine lanspine is a it's an incredible it's a very very strong antipsychotic but the physiological side effects are just fucking horrible yeah. I was just fucking sweaty. And also they there's plastic sheets there on the beds and stuff. Like you have a cotton sheet or whatever, but it's on top of a plastic sheet and you're never sleeping well on that shit, man. Regardless of how much softy clone you got. I'm sure you found as well when you talk to people about your experiences, like the situations that are more funny and more fun to talk about, like 
I sort of gear towards them just for kind of entertainment value and they're easy and they're, you know, they're fun stories or whatever, but like it's easy to get away from the fact that this 28 days was the hardest 28 days of my life as well. Yeah. And when you're on your own and you're in that room and you know, you've been forced to go to bed because it's time to go to bed uh, and you can't sleep and you got those racing thoughts and stuff. That shit's the most lonely and the most scared that I ever was uh, basically in my entire life. And it was like that pretty much every night. So I did get out of the PQ, obviously, uh, as as we sort of did discuss. But So that was a whole thing. Like It was a whole kind of new awakening and a completely different energy moving into a place. Just the fact I was allowed to make tea whenever I wanted. I was allowed to have a cigarette whenever I wanted. I could sit in the garden and chain smoke every like all day did a couple of times just in terms of cigarettes uh when it's the case of it just being a cigarette you can have a cigarette when you want it says a lot about what liberties you have to contextualize it as well i got moved to friends world on like the 16th or 17th of april in 2010 and this is like almost exactly a month before the 2010 general election yeah and under the section that i was under and in including the voluntary section I was under, I'd lost my right to vote. Yeah, and, uh, tough shit, that I think, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. There was a dude who, he had a weird kind of Van Gogh quality about him. He used to go around wearing like a straw hat and he had like a really big grey beard and I never heard him talk like a single time. I didn't ever hear him talk until one day... He'd had a meeting with the doctor and he'd been informed that they were extending his stay by another six months and he wasn't going to be able to vote. And that's probably the most intense that I ever saw anyone kick off. Like, full st- like you know, it was, yeah, and it was violent and he was doing stuff. And, like, I'd never... It was the first time I was allowed to vote as well because I was 21. Full stop, just as a complete principle for me i will absolutely vote at every opportunity that i'm given just to see that kind of level of just passion and fucking fury i don't know there was something about it i think he knew that the tories were going to get in power and that's what he was fighting about because he knew he was like adamant that gordon brown was going to fuck it up which he did and just to see that just level of passion about what's a hugely sort of taken for granted right in this country like I mean, it's terrifying, but it's pretty fucking inspiring as well. And considering the point that I'm at now and the fact that there was a time when I legally wasn't allowed to vote Mm. and having that liberty having been take away, however temporary, like I'll always vote and I'll always argue with people who don't. Do you know what I mean? As I say, you don't don't miss a toilet seat until it's gone, man. That's the name um, of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> brilliant <laughs> and like shoelaces as well man shoes are a fucking hassle to keep on like i ended up just wearing slippers yeah they can at least give you some velcro shoes or have loads of velcro shoes on standby or something like that yeah i know right there's certain hospital blankets there's two kind of blankets that they have on the nhs one of which is really nice and one of which is really fucking horrible and, they uh, punishment i think there's definitely potential for that but every time Every time they change sheets over, so it's like twice a week maybe, 
if I got given one of the shit ones, I was I just would never leave that alone. Not once. I'd just be like, give me one of the soft ones. Give me one of the soft ones. Or give me one of the blue ones. Like, you take whatever battle you can. Do you know what I mean? Any chance you have to fight against your situation. I'm especially like that. I will. Yeah, exactly. Even- and as you say, it's those liberties. It's that kind of, you know, I didn't have a choice of bedclothes. I didn't have a choice of... Uh, cutlery i didn't have a choice of fucking crockery man like i did get my right to vote before so i was i became an outpatient there was only like a week or a couple of weeks in it in terms of timing and i did vote uh and i voted lib dems like a twat ah you twat dude my priorities were screwed fucking clegg had come out and said that he'd legalize weed so literally that is the only reason i voted for You watch and listen to what people are saying and what they do and the way that they are. And you, I started to begin to sort of understand, like, yeah, I've been pretty nuts, but I'm not that nuts. And I might have been that nuts. Obviously, that's a hugely insensitive way to put it. But, um, but you know, like going back, were you aware that you were in a in a different state of mind? Yeah. And and but that wasn't necessarily like you were crazy. You were on like another level to yeah absolutely i believe i absolutely believed that i was a part of this kind of elite brained type of person that can just see above it and like see the matrix and the code that's there if you know what i mean (laughs) and beyond that did you then also think that like there is this idea of these people that are mad but i'm not that or did you think yeah absolutely yeah you and i was very much aware that i would be lumped in with those people okay which is a very, I think, is a very common kind of, and I've said, I've, I've said multiple times, I kind of just accepted that kind of martyr yeah. complex part of it, where it's just like I'm going to have to sit through this and just get through if I'm ever going to make a difference. Like I'm going to have to prove I'm not crazy and whatever. And did you think when you were in the hospital that the people there were helping? There were some really lovely people that were just genuinely helpful yeah. on a very fundamental level. If you know, like just sort of. Oh, dude, do you mind if I have a cup of tea? It's like, yeah, I'll make you a cup of tea. Had a thing about phone calls. I got banned from using the phone. And it, I th- it's it's slightly weird that I was allowed to use the phone in the first place in a way. But, like, this was uh, this is when I still knew, like, everyone's numbers off by heart. That's impressive. So I'd ring very um, – well, I mean, in terms of where, like, most of my friends lived with their parents and had had the same – you know phone numbers since we used to knock on and stuff like yeah so i'd just ring people up or whatever and like uh have a little chat and like usually just be like is there any way you can kind of like just pressure someone to get me the fuck out of here please like <laughs> you know that was a whole other big fight when i wasn't allowed to use the phone anymore <laughs> tried to get the number for like the guardian newspaper and stuff and they wouldn't give it to me well yeah i mean you're not allowed internet as well that's a pretty big fucking deal yeah it's like they're erasing you can't vote, can't go on the internet. <laughs> it's temporal and it's designed to be temporal and it's it is a complete pause on your life and you're taken away from you're taken away from society completely and any potential danger that you pose, any potential danger, if you felt inclined to incite a riot for That's what I did, yeah. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> That's quite impressive. But How many people were I right i didn't necessarily succeed completely yeah it was a failure in the end yeah all of my schemes were as well and i think that's worth noting 
the house always wins. Fuck yeah, man. <laughs> oh yeah, you can't win against can't win against the system. And then when that's a that's quite a big part of it as well. All of your kind of big ideas and all of your big plans and all of the grandiose kind of aspirations and stuff. When that doesn't come to when none of that comes to fruition, that's pretty fucking sobering. And it starts to become less fun quite quickly. Gordon Brown didn't want to talk to me about my ideas of how to sort out the housing crisis and shit. And like, what were the ideas? Were they that far fetched? It was a lot to do with kind of squatting and stuff. And like, I had the uh, us mostly from talking to other people, but basically limiting a hundred percent of people to how many properties they can own. And if they can't find a buyer, then it's up for squatters' rights, basically there's generally like that's the thing with grandiose sort of designs and uh manic ideas and stuff there's a pretty fundamental kind of lack of research (laughs) into how you might actually do those things which is where most of my ideas kind of fell apart plus the fact that i wasn't nearly as influential as i kind of believed i was and when you come to realize that and as i say when when i didn't feature in the newspaper and i didn't come off in the news and stuff that's a really kind of hard realization that you're kind of on your own, if you know what I mean. Um, and all of your fantasies begin to sort of show themselves as fantasies. My idea of my social standing, even within Cambridge and within my friendship group, was so vastly and sort of damagingly inflated to completely unsustainable, and it's a complete fantasy. So it's important that that came crashing down. And it was brutal. I mean, skipping over a bit, because, you know, in terms of the outpatient procedure and uh, moving from spending sort of three nights a week at the hospital and then four at home and blah, 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 and doing all that stuff and then f- moving back home and being a little bit manic and seeing a few people and running around and being a little bit social, but then suddenly having a really, I, I ended up having a really stark realization. My brother graduated, he graduated his master's, I believe from oxford oh oh yeah I, i've kind of i haven't really spoken about my brother. i'm really close to my brother so we went to my brother's graduation and i'd had kind of delusions of my own academic prowess and whatever and i thought i was a total fucking genius and like had a photographic memory and stuff and then when you sort of realize that you're not that that's a long way to fall and then like went to my brother's graduation and stuff and then like i don't really remember it that much i remember it a bit but like basically my whole fucking thing came crashing down um just that somewhat inevitable comparison between siblings and then being very conscious you know i've just come out of two mental hospitals i'm signed off i've ju- i don't have a job at this point uh i don't have a plan to get a job you know i'm not this fucking astonishing like legendary artist that I may have believed that I was very fucking recently. And then my brother's just got a master's in mathematics. And like, I was really happy, like in a really big way, I was really happy for him, but also I just hate, I just hated it. I hated the situation and there's such stark contrast between our situations. And he was already signed up to do a PhD and stuff. He'd got a full scholarship if I remember correctly to do his PhD in Bristol. Bristol's like one of my favorite places and stuff and it's just like so yeah basically that day exactly my whole shit came crashing down very very quickly and very dramatically entered a period of depression that took me essentially 18 months to recover from you're just laying in bed yeah fuck you man it's it's um 
as I say, man, because I, I spoke, you know, PQ unit manic, that's fun to talk about. And it's interesting and it's engaging and it's funny. You know, depression part is harder to talk about because it's no fun at all. Um, it is depressing. And it's depressing. <laughs> but it is important in terms of the contrast between the two and how it is a part of the recovery as well. In a way, I went as high as I ever went and so fucking quickly got down to you know within the space of like two months basically between being as high as i ever was and then as low as i ever was and in terms of being as low as i ever was uh i was on a shitload of medications as well olanzapine i found it began it began to just make thinking feel really difficult i was finding it incredibly difficult to articulate myself my recall just of words uh and of even situations and like names and stuff crashed pretty hard for a, quite a while. I then went through a process of changing medications and then it's just like you take a new antidepressant and it's just like, hey, doc, this is doing fuck all. This isn't working for shit. In some ways, very quickly, it made me feel fucking worse. And then they're just like, all right, so we're going to try it for a couple of months. Yeah. It's like, oh, cool. Well, I'll fucking see you in a couple of months then. And then spend a couple of months just in bed. Did any like therapy or anything like that? Yeah, I was. I wasn't ready to engage with it. That's the thing as well is like, I'm not angry at the doctor, but it's just, and it is a process and it's an important process. But dude, like, I mean, we spoke so briefly about suicide and stuff. Had a, I had an absolute fixation on suicide. Uh, I knew that I was never going to get to a point where I was going to actually do it, if you know what I mean. It wasn't like I'm going to kill myself. It was more just if I died now, that would be absolutely fine. Like that would be, I'd be, I'd be pretty up for that, to be honest. Like I kind of want off this boat. What do you think re recovery is? Are you aware of the, the politics of the word recovery? Politics of recovery. <laughs> I think when you're able to manage yourself, basically, uh, and when you're not entirely reliant on other people for basically everything, if you know what I mean, I suppose. I mean, that's... But in terms of my own mood and my own self-esteem, like recovering from recovering from a depression on a basic level, like when I suddenly stopped wanting to be dead all the time was a pretty big indicator that I was making a recovery. You know? were, there, were, there, were there things, though, like that you had to correct in yourself and in your life and in yeah. your relationships yeah. to come out of the depression. Though. Yeah, so I've skipped, I mean, I've skipped over a huge amount of stuff. So I had uh, I had 18 months of really intensive CBT. Did you like uh, it? I did. I hated it initially. I hated it for about a year, but I didn't have anything else, even in terms of time. Like I didn't have any other commitments in the week, really. At one point, I was having two sessions a week, which was intensive. I had a... Uh, peer support worker that would take me to go and play pool and we wouldn't like drink or anything but we'd go to one of the snooker clubs in cambridge and like literally just to do something social do you know what i mean yeah so i was with a service like a post-crisis like early intervention service called cameo uh which i don't believe exists anymore in all i mean it's 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 an extreme thing to say but i do absolutely believe that they saved my life and Jesus, who was my Spanish soap opera doctor, uh, he was the head of that unit, basically. And he was the head of the unit for the county. And basically, they gave me all of the best 
the very delivery gave me all of the best people because of some of the negative aspects of my treatment at Peterborough. Yeah. So my parents were fucking furious about all. Of, there was a lot of shenanigans. Basically, they didn't tell me. They didn't tell them that I'd been moved to Fullbourne until they got to Peterborough. Basically, one day. So they got to Peterborough expecting to see me, and it turned out I'd been moved to friends. And at no point did anyone tell them, for example, which is pretty fucking outrageous. Because uh, yeah. they're my net, they're my first point of contact, and they had all of my priority um, decision making and care and stuff. They basically very deliberately uh, gave me all of the best people, <laughs> um, and I was very fucking lucky in that sense. But yeah, so 18 months uh, CBT, changes of medication and stuff. Started to make a pretty slightly quicker recovery when I went on to Lamotrigine. Um, yeah, I was on that for a while. Lamictal. Uh, Lamotrigine's like a brand name, I think. Um, and it's got a couple of other things or whatever. But I'm on, I remain on the 150 milligram. Um, I've been on that since 2011. But yeah, I didn't, I got realistically especially kind of socially uh i didn't get anywhere near a full recovery until i quit smoking weed couldn't really deal with social situations very well at all and that was fucking hard because all of my mates were stoners a couple of them still are now do you know what i mean but like um as a crew that was a big kind of part of our group sort of brand identity if you know what i mean like we were stoners and we were skaters and we liked hip-hop and jungle like those four things were our kind of main deal basically so that that was fucking hard and quitting weed was fucking hard not anywhere near as hard as cigarettes but on a kind of on an emotional level and in terms of having an emotional reliance and having had swathes of amazing times with it and it being an obsession and it being a part of my life for such a long time that was something fucking hard to let go of in and just in terms of habit as well in terms of culture just that social interaction of having to go and pick up and then you sit in a room with people who are all there for the kind of same reason and you only know them because of that. So there's loads of people I haven't seen since the day I quit smoking weed. I mean, I've run into them a couple of times, but I've you know just had nothing in common with them to get in contact with them. Um, but yeah, I miss it. I miss it in a weird way. Um, I miss it in a way that I would never do it again. Not even like when you're in a hospice or something? No. Uh, well, yeah, possibly. We'll see. But by that point, I'm going to be on all the benzos that I can get my whole hands on. Man. Like, I can absolutely see getting addicted to benzos, which is why I can never really do them, I don't think. It's easily done. But like, that's the thing as well, is like it had to become an obsession to not do it. So like not even one toke. It took me just over a year, basically, out of hospital. Last spliff I had, if I remember exactly, I believe it was May the 8th, 2011. Then cigarettes, I quit a bit after that, but that was just, that's just because my now wife doesn't smoke. And just as a part of my identity and just socially and what everyone in Cambridge knew that I was just a fucking huge stoner. And that was a really big kind of part of my own self. How much has your identity changed having gone through this experience? I mean, it's almost entirely based around behaviors and stuff, just in terms of, age and longevity and whatever this is nine years ago so there's always going to be pretty huge sort of inevitable changes there's a lot of aspects of my character that remain a penchant for mischief every now and again and try and keep it clean and a lot of my fundamental principles and stuff haven't changed at all so i'm still non-violent 
That's a really interesting question. It's a really good question because I, I know I know that you don't like it, but the secret life of a manic depressive. One of one of the most important things that that threw up for me was just some really fundamental questions. So like, I did a little bit of research, but did you know that uh, basically ninety percent of ninety percent of marriages that have at least one bipolar partner end in divorce? But the, one of the main takeaways was in terms of having wanted to get married and have a family and stuff and having that as quite a fundamental kind of goal. I, I'm sure it's the same for you. They make you do your short-term goals, your blah, 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 all your targets and stuff. They try. Yeah, exactly. It had always been a goal to, you know, do the family and kids thing and wanted to get married at something. And then there, in terms of the bipolar population, whatever, however you might define that, there is a strong correlation between a bipolar diagnosis and divorce. There's a 30% chance that you'll kill yourself if you've been given a diagnosis of bipolar too. Yep, that was a scary one. Because once I saw this documentary, I did quite a lot of research afterwards uh, as well. So the next, se- so so James, I do want to call him Preston. Uh, it might be Prescott, who was my CBT therapist. One of the best people that I ever met. And he was just, fucking amazing and he was fucking relentless as well he just wouldn't leave me alone <laughs> like um and i'd skive off sessions pretty fucking regularly as well a couple of times he just turned up at my house and was just like i would like to have a chat today kind of thing and he was right to do that um but like he told me to watch it and he told me to do a bit of research into the stuff that i was kind of scared of and then i just came to him and i was just like you know I've always wanted to get married, but, you know, 90% or whatever marriages with bipolar people in end of divorce, there's like a 30% suicide rate. At one point, I saw it as high as 40%, you know. So I went to him with these statistics and just said, this is fucked. You know, this is me and this is my life here and I've got this laid out. And his his point was, um, and something that I have just come to live by, it's just like, okay, how are you going to keep yourself healthy? What steps can you take obviously with his help and stuff to get yourself into that 10% or get keep yourself out of that 30% do you know what I mean in terms of holding down long-term jobs and whatever how are you going to keep yourself healthy enough to do that I quit smoking weed within like a week of that conversation basically there is a lot of divorce to be fair generally is absolutely that- yeah it's it's over 50% I believe now but yeah it's something that scares the fuck out of me I'm married now my 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 wife um has depressive tendencies as well um which i think is actually an important kind of basis for our relationship and our understanding of one another so we've both been through highs and lows um a few times at the same time those times are hard i haven't really spoken about my wife at all because she comes along much later in the story do you, do you um, feel like you're going back to the identity thing do you, do you feel now that you're kind of marked for life um it's be and other what by the government (laughs) right they've definitely got eyes on me man there's this little white light next to my webcam that was never there before until i started talking about this with you no i'm joking um do you know what i mean though like i do know what you mean um, person that has to do or think or be treated differently to these normals over here yeah in terms of treated differently i'm not sure i think it's much more of an internal thing so I've, I have been through long periods where obviously I, t- I keep taking my medication 
I have to take my medication. I've been through periods of I've experimented with not taking my medication. It did not work. It didn't go well. That's the thing, because it's just kind of the whole being medicated stuff and like the over-medication in Western society and stuff. It makes you ask questions and whatever. And I, if I'm completely honest, I am comfortable with the medication I'm on. It works. I have no inclination to come off it. If there is an apocalypse and I don't have access to it, that'll be interesting for all of us. Um, yeah. It's a scary thought, you know. Um, but so, I mean, even within the last couple of years, I mean, so I had to, so I'm at uni, I'm in third year now, but I had to retake my second year because I had a long bout of about six months depressive episode. And that was a fucking hassle. And the uni handled it really fucking badly. So my tutor is a dude called Chris. He's the only person at the uni that fought for me, basically. He's he's full stop, like the only reason I'm still there, because he's just always kind of been there for me, if you know what I mean. But the university itself, like... Was the university like, we don't want these these sorts here? No, it was just the... the So I had to get mitigation. So... I missed all of my hand-ins in second year, basically. I didn't, so the illustration course is entirely coursework-based. And like, for, I didn't hand in anything for the whole year. Basically, if I hadn't got mitigation, I could have retaken the year, but had all of my marks capped at 40%. And to get that, we had to basically fight and go through a load of fucking admin. And it's arduous. They're not forward about it at all. I found them markedly unhelpful generally um they make the mitigation process as hard as they can for reasons which itself became a stressor and became a bit of a kind of trigger for feeling even worse yeah chris fought for me and he basically just wouldn't let me drop out good old chris yeah chris for fucking g Um, that's kind of discrimination if you ask me i think isn't it well it's kind of discrimination against everyone who has any kind of problem basically it seems that they make it as hard as possible to get a mitigation claim like artwork and illustration and my drawing and my way of drawing, whatever is a foundational part of my self-esteem. And if that's going well, then I feel good generally. And if I don't feel good, then I just don't feel that I can do it. And I don't feel there's any worth or value in doing it. And the fact that I then have to submit that for marking if I want to get this grade or whatever. Like... You're, you've got a good taste in art. I appreciate that. Thanks. Haven't you? So Because you like it. Oh, yeah, I'm obsessed with it. Like, when you look at your work, you might be like, I don't like this because it's not to my taste. Yeah, and I can be hypercritical about myself. And I've and uh, that's a good thing, though. I go through peaks and troughs of literally hating everything I've ever done. Um, you should, I think everybody should hate everything that they do. That <laughs> it's, uh, so yeah. it's You're like, oh, this is fucking great. Yeah, you I'm, can never, like... Uh, this is the fucking shit. <laughs> um uh, what is it um contentment is the enemy of invention there you go yeah is the i've forgotten who's who that's a quote from yeah, i guess so yeah it's it's it is something that still affects me um not in as an extreme way six months has been my longest one have you got another shit story to give us another shit story um I'm not sure that I do, but I think a big aspect, because I I mean, I mentioned my wife comes much later. If my wife had met me at 20 or 21 or 19 or 18 in the way that I was then, there's no way we would have got together. 
the really quite fundamental kind of life choices that I had to make to get myself to the point I'm at now, there's kind of a net positive that takes a very fucking long time to kind of arrive, I suppose, or to happen. What's that? Materialize. Materialize. Absolutely. That is the word I was looking for. So the last session of my CBT, like having to have it basically explained to me that they weren't going to give me like a your cured certificate. So I asked them like if they thought I was well enough to go back to work and they were just like, we can't, that's not what this is. This We're not going to, we're not going to stamp your hand and say sane. Do you know what I mean? Like, And that's a hard realization as well. Having been taken away from society and had your life paused, like it's a fucking long time to get it back to the point where you can press play on it again. In terms of losing all interest in the world and in life, regaining that and getting through that's one of the hardest aspects. And this, I mean, as I say, you're talking essentially a two week manic episode followed by an 18 month depressive episode. And that's fucking slow. Yeah. And that's a drag. And it's a drag every day. Many, many days where I didn't get out of bed. Had no interest in getting out of bed. There's only two things that got me to where I am. And that's because ego is seen as such a kind of negative thing. But like ego is like all the positive and this positive self-esteem that you have in yourself, essentially. Mm. I mean, it's not just that. But like basically even the tiniest kind of shred and understanding of your value and any kind of self-esteem or whatever like you just have to try and search out and like the other the biggest thing is just fucking patience it's so hard it's so easy to say it's so easy to say now like basically nine years removed from the whole process i don't know i don't know how to sign off things it's (laughs) like (laughs) you feel like you've learned things about life because I I always feel like I've I've gone to another side or I've gone to a place. Yeah, most people walking around, going to Tesco's, getting their lottery cards, mm. they haven't got a fucking clue about. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. It's it's having like self pride and an amount of ego just for getting out of bed, man. That's where you build it from. Like. Yeah, yeah. And then having self-reflection in terms of, I mean, this has been a really cathartic and a really lovely experience for me. I mean, I've definitely rambled and stuff, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate you just listening, man. But like um, taking a minute to stop and just reflect, like that's the fucking, that's the hell that I dug myself out from or with huge assistance from um, doctors and nurses, and especially family and friends. Um, and I was very lucky to have a strong support network. Mm. Um, that does go a long way you always feel i always end up feeling this this slight kind of twinge where it's just like i do want to assure people that i have been as low as you can do you know what i mean i don't i didn't have like the light experience and that's why i've made a successful recovery like but it takes fucking hard work man to actually make a recovery as you know like mentally physically and just fucking patience man like my biggest problem with the the whole term of, of recovery is that it implies to me at least that it's cured it's a well there's a going back to like I'm, yeah i do know what you mean kind of thing yeah but i don't i don't think i want to go back to that i think i'm better off yeah i absolutely agree and so i do know exactly what you mean 
changed forever. Yeah, absolutely. And it would, it's such a kind of unrealistic situation where I would even be able to go back to the lifestyle that I had before. And I have no inclination to either. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a slight, there is a kind of, can be a misinterpretation that a recovery is like being cured because it's not, it's just not as bad as it was, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's nowhere near as bad as it was or has been. But I think the world needs a cure before I do. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, uh, the world's never going to get cured. The, the world will get progressively worse until we all die. Uh, yeah, it's, got, it's getting better and better. There are things that are getting better. A couple of like little <laughs> roughs to work through, but... I don't feel stigmatized in the way that I did in 2010, for example. Uh, and I don't feel afraid to talk about, not to every single person. I don't stop people on the street and say, hey, dude, I've got bipolar. How about you? Like, but um, I've struggled with how embarrassing it all is. In terms of the Facebook stuff and having such a kind of public uh, sort of breakdown or whatever like episode, that's embarrassing and that's hard to re-enter kind of socially in to the community of people which mostly was always absolutely lovely because i know lots of lovely people because i'm very lucky in that sense that's why i call myself crazy yeah i'm fucking nutcase yeah i've I've, um other people can't yeah no one said anything mean to me about it in my to my face i think there's lots of sideways and backwards uh, things that people said a lot of which was true as well which i think is important to note it's the problem with exhibiting extremes of behavior and stuff like people are gonna interpret that in their way and then some people are more forgiving than others it's uh, but fuck those people i don't want to see them anyway (laughs) what does the future hold for niall and co niall and co uh i'm about to finish third year uh illustration so this is my last semester, which has been fantastic fun. I get to set all of my own briefs and do what I like. And then I want to work in the industry. I do lots of supply teaching and stuff. I'd like to work in. I'd like like to work with skateboards. That's what I've always wanted to do. So I don't see why not. If there's any skateboard companies listening, <laughs> hey. at Paperclip Club on Insta. Yeah. Insta me. There you go. I should. I'll send you some artwork if you haven't seen it already. Um, follow you on instagram just for a bit of context how about you john what are you up to oh god (laughs) yeah exactly too much (laughs) too much too much or enough enough to keep you busy oh yeah i'm busy yeah (laughs) i did just want to say i love what you do man i I think it's a great i'll try not to be too self-indulgent no i don't think you've been self-indulgent i don't want to Because I kind of have it with the fun stories and the funny stories. I don't want to kind of be glorifying or being kind of proud of times when I was being an absolute cunt, like of biblical proportions. Like, but at the same time, they are entertaining stories um, that are quite fun to tell. Um, It's not all on you, anyway. All of that, whether you're a cunt, you were made a cunt by my by my own well that's 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 the other question that i'm glad you didn't ask is where does the bipolar start and where does my personality end do you know what i mean that's a question that people ask me all the fucking time that's not that's not how you wrap up anything (laughs) no absolutely anyway so i'm not going to answer that question (laughs) if you want a cheesy quote if you're going through hell keep going 
it's one that I actually took quite a lot of comfort in. In the same direction or <laughs> around? Well, if you if you stop, I think it's the, <laughs> if you stop in hell and you stay in hell. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. You got so if you're going through hell, keep going. It's a cheesy one. Uh, it was on a fridge magnet and it helped me. <laughs> Coffee.